0: Welcome to episode 138 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is Scout Tafoya. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Scout is a writer and filmmaker whose work has appeared in The Village Voice and Film Comment, and he's written a new book, But God Made Him a Poet, Watching John Ford in the 21st Century. And Scout joins me today for a show about one of Ford's greatest films, 1962's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, starring John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and the godly Marvin. (laughs) Absolutely. For this book, you watched all of Ford's existing work in chronological order. It's a career that stretches back from the silent era until the mid-60s. And in fact, there are some movies that were made posthumously by Ford. But his last completed feature was in 1966 with Seven Women with Anne Bancroft. So what is that? 120 films?
1: Uh, it was Something a huge like amount. I, I don't remember the exact count. I did it at, at one point, but I always forgot the number immediately afterwards. It's it's on, if you go to his IMDb page, they, they credit him with 146. But because so many of them are missing, it comes uh, to a number closer to 110, 120.
0: Out of the flame and fury of the frontier, the Old West lives again as only John Ford can recreate it. Liberty Valance and the man who shot him. That's my stake, Valance. But you heard him, dude. Pick it up. I said you, Liberty. You pick it up. And the man who shot him was justifiably destined to become a hero. Yet, strangely enough, only one of these people could be sure he knew the identity of the man who shot Liberty Valance. Now, you stay out of this, Donovan. He's been hiding behind your gun long enough. You got a choice, dishwasher. Either you get out of town or tonight you be out in that street alone. John Ford won the Best Director Oscar 4 times, a still unmatched record, for The Informer, The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley and The Quiet Man. Interestingly, though, some of his most significant western films were not particularly recognized for Oscars at all. The Searchers, zero Oscar nominations. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, won Oscar nomination for Edith Head's Costumes. Yeah. Such an incredibly important filmmaker, but you know you know how the Academy always uh, seemed to ritually ignore <laughs> people like Alfred Hitchcock or John oh, Ford? Yeah. Uh, I think How Green Was My Valley was the only one that he won Best Picture for.
1: Uh, that, I believe, is true, yes. Um and uh, yeah, that was the thing is that Ford, even distinct from somebody like Hitchcock or Hawks, I mean, that was like famously the the the, the derogatory term for the critics who liked movies that were considered sort of light entertainments was the Hitchcocko Hawksians, um, because <laughs> Howard Hawks and Hitchcock together were were seen as not the vanguard, but rather just sort of people over there in their sandbox, essentially. Um, you know, that they were they were genre films and no matter how muscular they were, that wasn't really what people thought of as serious work. I mean, you know, movies, uh, Oscars went to films that were more self-consciously serious, which explains why How Green is by Valley and, you know, Quiet Man were the ones that finally got attention because they were romantic in one form or another. Um, but yeah, Ford Ford was distinct from from even those guys because he was basically seen as a public fixture in a way that like, especially because he you know he fought in World War two um, and had been around since the silent era and he was thought of as the kind of you know almost like a father figure kind of in in you know the the, the community in Hollywood and all that stuff despite the fact that he was a crazy alcoholic and an <laughs> abusive bastard um, but uh yeah, he was not recognized in that way because, again, mostly what he did were genre pieces of one kind or another. He made a lot of boat movies, you know, uh, wartime espionage stuff. Um, to say nothing of the movies he actually made during the war. He made light comedies, um, and uh, he made westerns, and he made um, you know the cavalry pictures are kind of, are basically westerns as well. Um, but uh, you know, especially during the '30s, you know, The Informer was kind of the only movie like that that he made at that during that decade, he he followed it up after uh, uh, a while with um, uh, uh, Long Voyage Home, which is that great, great one of my favorites of his, um, and that one's kind of got the same sort of character about it, where it is you know very clearly you know shot w- with an eye towards composition and telling those stories, um, but is not a you know you're not gonna confuse it for the life of Emil Zola or, you know, the, like, you know, the traditional kind of biopic stuff that was getting that kind of attention because then as now we confuse intention and pretensions towards seriousness with the actual achievement of that thing. Um, you know, so the movies that people don't remember anymore, like cavalcade and Ford made a couple of movies that were kind of like cavalcade, um, that I'm a little surprised didn't get more attention for that reason. But again, they were good. So it makes sense that nobody gave them awards.
0: Well, before we start uh, digging into the man who shot Liberty Valance, let's talk a little bit about the conundrum of John Ford, the walking contradiction, (laughs) as another uh, movie that quotes the searcher's taxi driver (laughs) would say. uh, John Ford, uh, you know, he's thought of as a a hard right conservative, and uh, maybe in the times that he lived in, he seemed that way. There are is evidence in his life and in his films that he had uh, what my guest Brendan Gallagher described when he came on the show to talk about the searchers. Uh, He said you might be able to classify Ford today as a centrist hawk, that for instance, he was not on board with the House of Un-American Activities Committee- he spoke out against those committee hearings. He spoke out against John Wayne, who of course wrapped himself in the flag in the 50s despite being a draft dodger, (laughs) you know? And uh, he wanted everyone to think that he was an American patriot. And Ford used to make fun of him in front of camera crews. The contempt that Ford had for Wayne not even serving, uh, that was like the instant slam dunk on John Wayne. Uh, I I read also that uh, Ford showed up on the set of the Alamo which was John Wayne's first film as a filmmaker specifically to harass him while he was trying to get work done.
1: <laughs> I mean it was it was so the the thing the thing about Ford that I find both very frustrating and very moving is that to me the great psychological, you know, thread in his entire life was he never wanted to feel left out of things. That he was so much you know, the the product of a huge, huge Irish family in Maine and never really getting the attention that you wanted from people, which explained why he pushed himself so hard. He was a football star in his younger days and, you know, he was a theater usher and he used to hold court and just like, he just loved getting people's attention. He really loved it. And later in life, he would punish people for not proving their allegiance to him. It's a, like fairly classical, you know, psychological move there where it's like, oh, I'm pushing you away so that you can't do it to me later. There's this amazing story where he was supposed to go on vacation in the South Pacific uh, with his wife, but he gave his wife's ticket to George O'Brien, the actor. And so she showed up on the dock and watched the boat sail away without her. And then they were just gone for like fucking 15 weeks or something. It was like a huge, very long trip. And Ford was hammered the entire time. And so finally George O'Brien like went to wake him up one day and a bunch of bottles fell out of the bed that he was sleeping in. He was like, I can't do this anymore. I get you're like, you're completely out of control. And Ford was so like bummed about this. So like O'Brien left him finally. He was like, was I'm going home. I can't. I'm not your wet nurse. I can't keep looking after you and he was so mad about it that he didn't put George O'Brien in movies for like 15 years. He was like so bent out of shape about that. And so, you know, if you if you even for a minute seemed like you were going to question his authority or, you know, to be somebody that he couldn't trust or whatever, then that was when he got like very very, you know, his, his, he was easily riled in that way. And mm-hmm. You know, the thing famously, you know, all the all the great like stories of him making fun of John Wayne in front of everybody. The like the perverse thing is it worked. Those performances are as good as everyone says that they are. And no one else was getting that kind of work from him. So when Wayne goes away to make the Alamo, right, which is like his passion project, he really wanted to do it and all that stuff. I think part of it is he felt left out that John Wayne wanted to go make this thing without his help, where he didn't want him around telling him you know how to make a better movie, which, by the way, he should have. (laughs) Um, and so there's, um, there are accounts of Ford is on the set of the Alamo, like 10 feet behind Wayne in a chair, you know, like in a, basically in a director's chair that he like probably brought from home. And, uh, he keeps telling him to do things differently. He's like, don't you, don't you think you'd rather do it this way, you know, Duke? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) And so finally they had to send him out to go shoot second unit so that he wouldn't steal the movie from John Wayne. <laughs> They're like, what the hell am I going to do here? This is going to be John Ford's movie. If I don't fucking get him out of here as quickly as possible. So like those stories are both really lovable and also like, Oh my God, that's so annoying. <laughs> like, You know, if I was, you know, but like, hey, and the, the, the other, fu- you know, thing about that, that's like, that makes a lot of the John Ford stories, you know, a little more lovable than they would be otherwise is that most of the time the people that he were tormenting, they were complete assholes and so you kind of want him to be giving ward bond a raft of shit all the time because ward bond was such a colossal prick in real life and yeah. you know john wayne just had completely unsupportable terrible politics based on nothing at all it was you know that same sort of you know freudian tell there that it was like oh yeah everybody's gonna say that i'm a draft dodger and a coward so i'd better be the loudest and you know most uh, uh, unapologetic American there is so that nobody can get out ahead of me and be like, hey, aren't you a huge coward? (laughs) You know, (laughs) because you talked about this where like he wanted to go, he wanted to go be in Ford's photographic unit and Ford probably could have like pulled some strings to get him there, but also he didn't really want him there. And then he used that as an excuse, like, well, you know, you could have invited me out to, you know, I (laughs) You could have had me over for the war, but uh, you didn't. And, uh, you know, I had a family and all this other stuff as if Ford didn't have kids. Not that he didn't completely mistreat them as, as he did everyone in his life. But, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Ford just couldn't forgive Wayne for the uh, primal offense, which was to not uh, volunteer to serve when, when called Eighth. to duty.
1: Exactly right. And so was he the-
0: was like, I'm not letting you uh, join. I, as far as I'm concerned, you're a draft dodger.
1: Right, yeah. Why wouldn't you want to get on the boat with me at command, you know, like very PT-109 optics of him with his leg on the top of the boat or whatever, you know, like washing the cross of the dollar. Um, But um, that was the, like, the fascinating thing about Ford's, you know, like, kind of, like, I I attribute the the hard right stuff, like, you know, towards the end of his life to a very, very simple thing, which is that. And, and again, that all came as uh, out of nowhere to a lot of the people who knew him, because when he was a younger guy and a little more steeped in Irish politics, he was a hardcore socialist. Like he famously, you know, took like basically went on a clandestine secret mission to give money to the uh, to the Irish during their fight, you know, for in, in I think it was like 1921. He did this um, mm-hmm. he bought him he bought him an ambulance and he was like very, very, you know. He was concerned with the plight of the oppressed, you know, and that makes the oddness of him making movies about the Confederacy all the thornier and, you know, more strange because he didn't really agree with the Confederacy. And so, like, I don't know what business he had making a movie like Judge Priest or, um, uh, oh, for heaven's sakes, the one from 58, uh, Spencer Tracy was dead, so he couldn't, I'm oh, sorry, Will Rogers was dead, so he couldn't play the character anymore. Uh, Sunshine Bright, Sunshine Bright is the one that I was thinking of. That movie ends with this you know like parade of you know confederates moving through town and all this it's just like what the hell were you thinking man like you know and i just think that to him it was completely distinct that he didn't and part of the reason you know when we get into the later Ford stuff that you'll see him actually trying to take stock of the you know the damage that his movies have done is because for years he didn't think about how they looked because he didn't have to think about how they looked. Mm -hmm. optics were not really a part of public life in that same way that it made more sense for him to fuel his early political ambitions in a country other than america because america didn't really do any of that stuff you know certainly that was going on but it didn't affect him in burbank or you know wherever his mansion was at the time you know like that was just not everyday life in hollywood until you get to moments like huac and he did stand up you know he was again that that same demand to be liked you know, he he talked down Cecil B. DeMille trying to take control of of the, the, you know, the the Director's Guild and and everybody naming names. But he also then like sent Cecil B. DeMille a letter of apology afterwards for having done it because he was like so worried about uh, offending the wrong people, which was so strange because, you know, he never did any of that shit to John Wayne and you just let him have it. But like this guy was, I don't know, someone that he saw more as a peer or something like that. Or again, maybe he just really looked up to the guy because of all the movies he had made and he really wanted his approval. You know, there are a handful of people whose whose uh you know, Hosanna's he chased relentlessly and uh, and other people he just kinda let him have it whenever he wanted to, whenever it suited his mood or whenever he was feeling particularly bent out of shape about something. Um you know, but like he, f- like he fought with people. He got into a fistfight with Henry Fonda on the set of Mr. Roberts. Um, <laughs> and you know, he was just a, not a pleasant guy in any way, shape or form. But when, um, so he was in charge of the field photographic unit in World War II. So that was why he was there to film the battle of Midway where he got shrapnel in the arm, which, you know, that, it, like it, it, that's talk about, you know, life in a different era or whatever. It's amazing to think of any major filmmaker now walking around with shrapnel in their bodies (laughs) because you know, they fought in the war or whatever. Um, Mm. But uh, yeah, almost, almost nobody left, but um, uh, they threatened to take his, um, his unit away from him in the fifties because he was consorting with reds basically that a lot of his screenwriters were either, you know, completely to the right. Hawks, like, um, what the hell is his name? Uh, I want to say Frank Nugent, but I don't remember if he was the one who had the crazy, I remember Philip, uh, uh, doesn't matter. But the point is he was hanging out with the lefties. It was all, you know, the good screenwriters were, were socialists. And so the U S government got wind of this during the worst of the hue action. They're like, well, we're going to take your, your photographic unit away unless you, you know, cut this out basically. So that was the end of John Ford, the public socialist at that point was, it meant more to him to like be able to give his uh, you know, his friends uh, you know, a, 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 his veteran friends, a, a kind of a shelter. He had this farm dedicated to parties that he would throw for all these guys. Um, one of his writer friends, actually one of his socialist writer friends at one point was like, you know, you could just give that money to like charities and stuff rather than throwing lavish parties for all of your veteran friends. And that pissed him <laughs> off so much that he never worked with that guy again, too. Um <laughs> He was just he had he had such a fragile ego that guy. It's wild. Mm-hmm.
0: And then the other big uh, elephant in the room when it comes to John Ford, you know, as important a filmmaker as he is, a bona fide visual artist, uh, a great filmmaker, tons of great movies, movies that also stand the test of time. Like mm-hmm. you could watch Stagecoach now, you could watch Liberty Valance now, and it's like, wow, this is like classical filmmaking. This is what you're supposed to do <laughs> when you're making a movie. Yep. Um, the damage that he did in terms of reinforcing racial stereotypes, uh, celebrating uh, violence at the hands of the state in his films, uh, you know, one dimensional cartoon characters. Certainly, there's sexism in some of his films. Absolutely, there is racism in some of his films. As important as The Searchers is, and as much as I respect The Searchers, I would have a difficult time recommending it to certain people because it's so gross. Yeah no it's and, true. and to a certain extent the 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 grossness of the main character in the searchers is not news to john ford but there's violence against an indigenous woman in the movie that's played for laughs
1: yep yeah it's it's both domestic abuse and it's racist it's uh, it's yeah almost the triple crown there um well also she's overweight and they kind of make fun of her for that too so i guess it is um but um it's yeah no i mean that is truly the thing again you know we talk about optics and all that stuff is You know, The Searchers is a fascinating film because there is a reckoning with what Ethan Edwards is going through, and there is an admission that this kind of a person—that there really is not, and perhaps should not be—a place for this kind of a character going forward. Right, where he, you know, deliberately turns his back on domesticity and wanders off into the desert. You know, like a very—it's a very mythic image of the uh, departure of uh, Ethan Edwards. Um, But having said that you have to spend two hours with the guy, you know what I mean? Like you, it's not simply that the movie is about, you know, just the, the, the disillusion of, uh, of that kind of a stereotypical, you know, hard talking racist old man. It's, you know, it's a completely different, uh, it, it, yeah, it is a tough sit in a thousand ways. I find it, you know, before we started recording, you said something interesting, which is that it wasn't necessarily that, he he had he had just perpetuated so much of the you know harmful images. He had invented them. He had come up with the codes you know by which these things are 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 are, um, are judged now. And it's very true. The stagecoach was really the resurgence of the western as a staple at the box office, as opposed to you know something that kids watch. You know what I mean? There have been attempts at that stuff, and there are a lot of great early westerns. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think that they had the same kind of public perception as. A, f- a film genre in which real art can, you know, flourish. Um, you know, that's despite, you know, people like William Wyler and William Wellman and um, Raoul Walsh making great early Westerns. Don't, you know, that's, that's not to say that anybody was right about it. That's absolutely true. That stagecoach helped bring the Western back into popularity because it was such a huge success. Um, but you're right in, in valorizing that movie and everything in it, that came with a pretty healthy dose of, you know, genocidal imagery, you know, those, the, 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 the images in stagecoach of John Wayne and, uh, um, you know, John Carradine shooting at natives from their stagecoach, the safety of the stagecoach, you know, it's, it's a collection of white people inside of this carriage shooting at everybody who comes near them is justifiably brought up time and again as the sort of ne plus ultra of the way that the American attitude towards, uh, Native Americans, uh, was seen and, and thought of. And, you know, that was absolutely the, you know, the manifest destiny writ large movie of that era. Um, and it's, uh, you know, in, in going back and writing the book, the, the thing that I wanted to talk about and, and the, the you know, it, the, the, exciting thing potentially to go back and actually stare at all these things and say, yeah, no, this is some of the finest American filmmaking of all time. And yet it comes from a completely indefensible point of view where, you know, and I think a lot of it was irresponsibility on the part of people, you know, like Ford adapting things that they didn't really understand was anything other than good fun. Because again, it didn't affect them until Ford started going to Monument Valley to make these movies. I don't believe he knew many Native Americans. And then of course, there's the weird contradiction of him you know, just like flooding that region with cash because he was paying people to work local crews and be a part of that stuff and paying them as extras and actors and every other thing and stunt people. Um, and, you know, so like really helping, you know, that, Part of the world out, and they desperately needed it because the region had been starved by austerity measures. It still is, of course, um, you know. But also, then making movies that basically encourages people to view them as faceless, nameless, shapeless enemies. It's just they're out there, and you don't understand them. You don't need to understand them, so you can just you know kill them if they come near you. Um, you know, and it's he he. The same year as he made Stagecoach, kind of interestingly, he made um, Drums Along the Mohawk, which has. A pretty like offensively Frankensteinian portrayal of a friendly Native American who comes in and scares Claudette Colbert half to death. Um, but you know the whole thing is that Henry Fonda has made friends with this guy and is like, oh no, don't be afraid of him. He's you know whatever one of the good ones. And then later in the film, um, two you know drunken Indians come in and murder an old woman and all. It's just you know this. It, he 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 he. I don't think he was really putting all that much uh, thought into the optics of that thing. I think the thing that he hid from people was that he liked people. Um, you know, he just didn't like the people around him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it just, he didn't think about these things, you know, so many movies like prisoner of shark Island all about Samuel Mudd and, you know, the, 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 the proud Confederate whose slaves have decided to stay on his farm long after the war has ended and Lincoln has been assassinated and everything. It's just like, this you know this is it was it was the script was what was in front of him and so that was what he was going to do and he was going to direct it in the best way possible like prisoner of shark island is a really good movie with just the worst fucking point of view You're like watching it is like how did you how did how are you oh my god it's just appalling. <laughs> And yet so thrilling and so beautiful and so exciting. It's like, my God. Yeah. Cause you're watching two things happen. You're watching somebody really snap to and come on- online as the great poet of the cinema. And also somebody who gave no thought whatsoever to what was behind the images. It's truly fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of kept it up or whatever. And it's like, I don't know if he like equated the Confederacy to the, you know, American armed forces or something like that. And that's what made him do it. But then also later he makes a movie like The Horse Soldiers in which the Union are the heroes and, you know, Confederates are seen as drunken yahoos, basically. It's, you know, that's the Sam Peckinpah you know, uh, Cracker character very much born in a scene where it's Denver Pyle and um, Strother Martin are just these drunken assholes that they kidnap at one point, and they're you know the thing about them that really stands out is they got this zealotry about the Confederacy. You're not supposed to like those guys, but that was in 1959, so many years after he had been doing this for as long as he have, That was kind of really the start of the of the you know looking over your shoulder period, where he was mm-hmm. trying to take some you know a, a, a accounting for. Uh, uh, you know what he had put all of these characters through all through his life, and he gave interviews about it too. He's very open about it. He said, you know, I've killed more. The quote is like, I've killed more Indians than Custer or something like that. And you know, it's it's it must have been a difficult thing to do that. But also, again, it all comes from a place of privilege, is that he was allowed to make these really expensive often misguided movies giving people back the dignity that he'd stolen from them in the first place it's right. you know not everybody gets to you know make as expensive an apology as they did the crime in the first place and you know he 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 died surrounded by friends in a nice house you know what i mean <laughs> like so whatever whatever he was going to do you know he he it was always one step forward two step back with him which makes him fascinating but also very frustrating and you know but also that's that's you know why write about movies that are not you know riddled with with you know something conflict you know like why why talk about movies where there's nothing to talk about whether it's the you know the contradictions inherent in the in the director themselves and the way that the art comes out or the fact that the movie is ideologically hideous because if any critic will tell you that presents its own kind of a challenge when writing about it i mean you know the, the trying trying to go back to this stuff now and you know Writing about a movie like The Searchers or Liberty Valence, which has been written about hundreds and hundreds of times over for the past 70 years, you know, you're not gonna find anything new to say. And so I was trying to treat it almost like like a book of poetry more than anything else. It's not like it's not the definitive take, and there are better researched books about Ford out there. Joseph McBride's enormous Uh, volume, Searching for John Ford, was uh, a a, a great resource for me when going through this. Obviously, Tag Gallagher's book from uh, the mid-80s is also uh, very informative. Um, uh, Lindsay Anderson wrote a book uh, uh, that was, I think, published years after he wrote it, um, and it's just this great collection of writing about Ford, and Anderson's just such a great, great writer. Um, But So the thing was not to give a definitive accounting of anything, but rather Try to make sense of something at a period in time where we seem to be more and more afraid of contradiction, where somebody has, you know, the wrong politics or whatever, you know. I always think about that Sean Glynnis tweet that's like, uh, you know, for me to enjoy a movie, it better have some pretty fucking good politics, (laughs) (laughs) off-the-charts politics. And it's like, yeah, no, because those movies wind up boring and, you know, patrician and and condescending anyway. So. You know, why not find something that takes a little out of you to try to, you know, figure out your way around it? And, of course, to try to find something unique to say about movies that have been written about 4,000 times.
0: Mm-hmm. Although a lot of the films that you've written about in this book have been written about, like, twice. No, that's very <laughs> true. Yeah, times. I know. Some of them,
1: some of them have not, never been seen before by human eyes. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> I don't think, you know, I don't, not too many reviews out there for his last posthumous release, Chesty. That's <laughs> the, right. The uh, hagiographic... Uh, Documentary that seems to have been made for the military about this war criminal, basically. Yep.
1: (laughs) True psychopath. Just a genuine fucking lunatic. Ford sits him down in his chair. He's talking to him. Like, this guy looks like he is dying. He is actively dying on camera. And he's just, like, gleefully reminiscing about all the people he's destroyed over the years. Just, like... And then they cut away to John Wayne, who's basically just like Bela Lugosi and uh, uh, fucking Glenn or Glenn, like yeah. just, you know. And then at that point, Jesse decided to invent napalm
0: and start fucking <laughs> using
1: it on Koreans. It's like, what the hell is going on?
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, this reminds me a little bit of, you know, this this dilemma that we live with now uh, that uh liberty valence is also kind of about, which is this idea of liberalism where you ha- always have to prove how tough you are. Yes. Oh you my know? god. Like like you you know, I believe in law and order, but ultimately you need a gun to enforce law and order. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And and very much something that guys
1: like that, you know, in in that generation, having grown up a a lot of these, you know, people would have grown up in the country with guns anyway, just, you know, as was the custom all over the world. Um, But then they all fought in wars. And it's like, so how are you going to tell them that they don't need guns or whatever? So it is pretty miraculous to think that not only did Ford make this movie, um, uh, uh, the screenwriters, Beulah and, and Goldbeck, they adapted this story by uh Dorothy Johnson um and it was only 11 pages it's a beautiful beautiful piece it's it's one of those things where taken in isolation when you watch the movie you're like this there's no way that the story is as good as the movie and then you read the story you go there's no way the movie's as good as the story it's incredible um, and it's got a uh, the, the 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 short story is a much harder edged thing it is a much less kind text and a much less tender one um, and You know, there's a starkness to the way that Dorothy Johnson describes things in the story, and it isn't put up in the same way that Ransom Stoddard, um, um, who has a slightly different name in the story, is a pacifist in that way, where, you know, he has reluctance about it, but he's out there practicing with the gun all the time, and, you know, there's still that same little vignette where... um, the John Wayne character, uh, Tom Donovan, um, who again has a different name in the story comes up behind him and basically makes a fool out of him. It was like, yo, this is how you do it, but I don't want to, you know, ruin your targets or whatever. Um, you know, so Ford taking this script from, uh, uh, the, the, the two writers and saying, you know, basically agreeing with the idea that it should be much more about what violence does to undo you, you know, that after so many movies like, Rio Grande and Fort Apache and, and she wore a yellow ribbon in which, you know, violence is not necessarily without complication. I mean, certainly in Fort Apache, you know, and there's some debate even now about how just exactly how liberal that movie is, which I find kind of fascinating. Um, but you know, it is still sort of just taken as part of life out there. I mean, you know, famously in Sergeant Rutledge, which is this great, you know, sort of seen as an early work of, of pro civil rights, you know, revisionism of the Western where the hero is, uh, 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 Woody Strode, you know, and he is just this amazing, beautiful, dignified performance. And yet then his character and the rest of the Buffalo soldiers under his command, they wind up shooting a bunch of native Americans. It's like, there always has to be somebody a little worse than you down the road. Otherwise, what good is it to lionize this or that character or this group of people? If there isn't somebody to look down on in, in, you know, in the same gesture. And so, in Liberty Valance, Jimmy Stewart being so, I mean, filled with rage basically, but feeling so impotent about the things that he can't accomplish, that was not in the source story in the same way. It's it, the story is much more enigmatic uh, and much more purposefully blank because they want you to sort of fill in the the, the bizarre character dynamic that forms between the three characters. Um, you know, the, the the two men who love the same woman. Uh, and Liberty Valance doesn't have nearly as much of a, uh, presence in the story either. And so obviously casting Lee Marvin to play him stroke of genius. And, uh, I think that was Wayne's suggestion because they had been in a movie together in 61. Um, but, uh, you know, Lee Marvin swaggering into that movie aware that, you know, this is really his film because, or it has to be because he's acting opposite Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne, who were two of the you know most monolithic presences in American cinema. So if you're going to do something different than them, you really have to go for it. And it's kind of wild to see Marvin doing this kind of, you know, almost kind of, you know, methody kind of a performance, you know, that you think of that stuff, like Brando or something like that. Of course, who he had acted opposite in the wild one um, 10 years earlier. But next to Wayne, who is still so old fashioned, but it's like, it, it it works perversely. It works. It should make Wayne seem like the amateur, but it really doesn't. It's just that these two different styles are so clearly at odds with each other. And that becomes a fun part of the subtext of the movie that it's one style of acting versus another and the coming of modernity into cinema. And, you know, certainly Liberty Valance has moments that are high modernist, um, you know, like a lot of the best Ford stuff. I mean, Long Voyage Home is probably the great modernist Ford film, but there are a million of them. But anyway, um, you know so to take a look at violence in this way and say that it really does destroy Ransom Stoddard that it's you know it's both the thing that that made him and gave him his entire life and it's also tormenting him and he'll never he's the implication the final haunting implication is that this man is going to die associated with the thing that makes him feel the worst of anything in his life Mm-hmm. that there's nothing he can do to get rid of the uh, you know the reputation that he has as the man who shot liberty Valance, and you know he's been in the senate at this point for what seems like decades you know it's you can't tell how old anybody's supposed to be because all the ages are completely crazy like you know that's wayne wayne seems to be like everybody in that movie is like supposed to be playing a teenager but they're all in their 50s like it doesn't yeah, work right. at all like Ozzy whitehead shows up and he's like they caught him at the fishing hole or whatever that man is 50 years old <laughs> like he's in like little overalls and shit it's so silly but it works it, all weirdly works. It's it never, you know, because Stuart is just that guy, he needs to be in that role as the guy so strung out about everything, and so unable to do the heroic things that he wants to both as a pacifist, and then later as the big tough talking cowboy. And the amazing thing about Liberty Valance is that you're, you know, exactly what you're saying about, you know, you got to be the guy who's willing to challenge a bully to a fight or something to beat them. And it's like, yeah, but what happens afterwards? What happens when you beat the bully half to death? You know what I mean? Like, do you feel better about yourself? Probably not. No, because that was never really the answer to begin with. And, you know, I always, I found the movie really, really captivating for a 100 reasons. I was raised uh, Quaker, and many of the films about Quakerism, and there really aren't that many, don't get at the sort of debate about living in modern society um, you know, that Quakers sort of ideologically and implicitly have with themselves all the time is what do you do when the world is violent, and you're the only people who are refusing to take part in its violence? Are you not only rejecting the only kind of conversation that the you, you know modern world is willing to have with you? But are you not also leaving yourself open to being taken advantage of in this way? And I've always been very very fascinated by that idea that like i you know that, that that's kind of the only thing from quakerism that really stuck with me is nonviolence. is that like i do i'm fairly staunchly against it except in situations where you really need to i mean you know that's there's a there's a big movement right now to encourage uh young queer women to buy guns because they need to defend themselves because the world is becoming an incredibly violent place and it's like part of me is like oh, that makes me uncomfortable, but also like, yeah, of course you need to do that because everyone is a psychopath now. (laughs) You know, you can't really tell people the best way to move through the world because you have not had their experiences. Um, You know, obviously there are, you know, there are limits to that too. and, And it's just a question of how far can your empathy extend And is that really the conversation that you should be having? And, you know, as long as you can try to understand what other people have been through, then, you know, is that enough? You know, what is enough? And where does it stop? And when you're up against something like this Liberty Valance character, can there ever be a point where you think you're going to do some ideological gymnastic move to convince this person to live a different way rather than with and through violence?
0: Three terms as governor, two terms in the Senate ambassador to the court of St. James, back again to the Senate, and a man who, with a snap of his fingers, could be the next vice president of the United States. Well, you're not going to use this story, Mr. Scott? No, sir. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Let's talk a little bit about the concept of late style of filmmakers, um, because two of the movies that this film reminded me of after having not seen it for a while are two other late style filmmakers that I respect greatly. uh, One being Martin Scorsese with The Irishman, the other being Clint Eastwood with Unforgiven. Although Clint Eastwood started making late style movies 30 years ago. (laughs) Um, The reason why it reminded me a little bit of The Irishman is the idea of um, just like The Irishman, Liberty Valance is an extended flashback sequence where actors are playing the same characters except decades younger and in, in a not particularly convincing way. The Irishman tries to do what it can with the digital de aging stuff, which I was okay with because, for me, it amplified the sort of unreliable narrator story that was being told. That you know, this is an old man telling you what really happened, and so there's something wrong with his memories. And so it is with Liberty Valance that um, I think one of the reasons why they shot the movie in black and white beyond saving money was uh, it helps to push guys in their mid fifties as younger men, although it didn't occur to me that they were supposed to be teenagers. <laughs> I thought they were maybe in their late twenties. I mean, maybe maybe, 30s, yeah, but they might actually be supposed to be uh, early twenties. I think, yeah.
1: Twenties is probably what it's supposed to be. I'm, mean, you know, teenagers is maybe an exaggeration, but you're absolutely right that the black and white does help that like, especially in scenes where like the thing, um, where, where, um, Liberty Valance trips Ransom Stoddard in the restaurants, and he's on the floor looking up at John Wayne and Lee Marvin having this discussion, you do forget the relative ages of people for a minute when you're looking at them, especially Jimmy Stewart, because he presents such a pathetic figure, and yet such a lovable one where it's like, God, that is like the worst, that's the very worst situation right there. You want so badly to stand up for yourself but A, you're terrified, and B, you don't have the means to do it that your, you know, your, your stubbornness does not count for anything because these two guys have guns and they'll kill you if they want to. And you know it's especially worse because John Wayne is trying to stand up for Jimmy Stewart and he hates that he's doing this for him because he presents somebody who you need to stand up for. He hates how he presents himself. Um, but yeah, it's funny. It's, I, I, I remember dimly that when the Irishman came out, there was talk about liberty violence, but I hadn't thought about it for the aging stuff. Um, that's an excellent, excellent point.
0: But also, uh, in terms of the Irishman, the way that um, Tom is a forgotten man—the mm-hmm. the, the things that he did to uh, push history forward and to make life better for the girl that he wound wound up losing to—he uh, lost the love of his life, Hallie. He wasn't throughout the movie. People are pestering him, like, "When are you going to pop the question? When are you going to ask her to marry you?" And he's like, uh, "You know." We'll get there, and he's built an extension in his house. That you know, he has ideas about the future. His future is sort of waylaid when Ransom Stoddard arrives, an Eastern guy, a young lawyer. He represents the uh, the taming of the West in many ways. He arrives in a lawless place that hasn't even reached statehood yet, and Tom is a well loved figure in the town, and he's kind of the de facto lawman because. The main marshal played by Andy Devine is a complete coward,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> a wonderful performance. Very, very funny. But, you know, he is the lawman in charge and he can't do anything about Liberty Valance.
1: Uh, exactly know. right.
0: And that's and so and Tom can, but uh, instead sort of chooses to um, be around as a reminder uh, that, you know, if Liberty tries it, I'll, I'll top you at one point. Tom describes himself as the toughest man south of the picket wire next to me. That's right. So scout, let's talk about the actual plot of the man who shot Liberty Valance before we start digging into the deeper meanings. Of course.
1: Yes. So, um, uh, Ransom Stoddard, uh, and his wife, Hallie played by the great Vera miles, um, who is just so, so good in this film. and so moving. Um, they come back to, uh, uh the town where they first met, um, and uh, a, a journalist played by Carlton Young is put off by the presence of a famous senator in his small town. And so basically demands that he explain, you know, make accounting of himself. You know, why have you come back to the to the burial of Tom Donovan? Um, and so he explains that when he was a much younger man, he rode out in the territory to start a law practice. That was his, you know, great ambition. Um, but of course, the first thing that happened to him when he got out there was... They were uh, hit by stagecoach robbers um, pl- uh, led by a man named Liberty Valance, uh, played of course by the great, great, great Lee Marvin, um, and his two sidekicks, Brother Martin and, um, and Lee Van Cleef. Lee Van Cleef, that's what. It, yeah, God, he's so good too. Just those great eyes. Um, but uh, he is uh, gravely injured during the process, and while he's uh, uh, convalescing, he works in a restaurant with uh, Hallie who at the time is being courted by Tom Donovan, who is the man who saves uh, Ransom Stoddard after his beating at the hands of Liberty Valance and says to him, you're never going to take somebody, you're never going to take care of somebody like Liberty Valance, um, you know, with law and order that the marshal in town played by the great Andy Devine is too much of a coward to face up to him, which is exactly how somebody like Liberty Valance wants it because you can get away with things and nobody bothers you. Um, and so Liberty Valence kind of has a stranglehold on the territory that every time he comes through, people just get out of his way because he's crazy and he's violent. So uh, Ransom Stoddard has to decide for himself whether he's going to stick to his principle of doing things the right way, you know, through law and order, taking him to, to court and all that, even which is going to be difficult because the marshal won't arrest him, um, or if he's going to do what Tom Donovan suggests and buy a gun and shoot him. Um, and you know, you learn throughout the film that, uh, it, it, he, he, did stoop to Liberty Valance's level and went out into the street at night with the intention of killing him because he, uh, laid a pretty hard beat down on uh, a journalist played by Edmund O'Brien, who was one of the, uh, Ransom Stoddard's allies in town. Uh, another great performance from Evan O'Brien. Um, and when he goes to shoot him, uh he thinks he did it but of course tom donovan did it he was hiding out uh waiting for this to happen knowing that jimmy stewart's ransom starter was not going to shoot it least of all with the wrong hand in the middle of the night while bleeding from a gunshot wound <laughs> and so as you say the minute that tom donovan agreed to help basically the, the minute he found him in the wilderness he was undoing all of the carefully laid plans that he had made for himself that like Liberty Valance, Tom Donovan enjoyed sort of a you know privileged position in town, where he was viewed as the more kindly version of it, the sort of angel on the town's shoulder to the devil played by uh, Liberty Valance. And it's kind of fascinating and also just heartbreaking to see Tom Donovan, this guy who just radiates a kind of you know gentility, despite the fact that he does make people answer with bullets. Um, you know, just such a nice person fall completely apart because of the one nice thing that he did wrong when, you know, he needed most to not find ransom, Stoddard in darkness and bring him to town and thus ensure that he would die alone. But for his uh, best friend played by Woody Strode um, while ransom, Stoddard got the credit for killing Liberty Valance and, uh, and became a famous Senator and, you know, has, has risen in stature and all that. But, you know, that was the thing is that the, 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 really horrible implication of the movie is that neither man actually got what he wanted (laughs) is that they, they did their own version of the right thing. And it turned out to be the
0: wrong thing for both of them. But it also turned out to be the right thing for society. (laughs) Yes. Right. (laughs) That's that's what's so amazing about the, the, the message of this movie. I I would argue that even uh, Hallie's life is uh, at once ruined and redeemed. She's illiterate when we first meet her. Jimmy Stewart's character starts to educate the people in town who want to be able to read and write. And the whole idea of law and order taking hold in society is based on an educated population. And uh, and this is also a region that's becoming a state at some point. And Rance represents that leap forward, the end of the Old West, the beginning of the modern era, the film is one giant framing device where a train comes into town and the elderly senator and his wife arrive. And then we have a nearly two hour long flashback that's followed right. by <laughs> followed by a denouement at the end where we now understand everything. We understand that um, our first hint that uh, seismic changes are coming is in the first few minutes after Rance is beaten up by Lee Marvin and gets brought into town. And we find out that, the this young woman named Hallie, who's a nurse, is Tom's girlfriend. And and everyone in town thinks that Tom and Hallie are gonna get married. There's kind of a, a stars hollow Gilmore girls feeling very much. <laughs> that very everybody much. in town knows that this is the dream couple. This is the uh we all want to see these people succeed and be happy. But you can't argue with uh, the bona fides that Rance provides. Like He's providing law and order to the city. He's providing education to the masses. He's presiding over the possibility that uh, rules will be in place at some point. The contradiction with his character is that he has to tame this part of the world that still believes that you ultimately have to settle all your disputes with violence. And that is what Tom represents, especially at the end, when it turns out that he's uh, he's basically Rance's uh, protector by the mm-hmm. end. And what I find so interesting about the final act of this movie is that suddenly Rance is elevated in society, is thought of as a future politician, and uh, and as it turns out, becomes a politician, and and he wins the uh, battle. The love triangle. He gets Hallie. He breaks Tom's heart twice in 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 that respect. And Tom makes it happen. I thought it was very thrilling at the end of Liberty Valance when suddenly John Ford starts to do uh, a Kurosawa stuff and to yep. show us th- this uh, key moment in what turns out to be American history yep. from a different angle. And 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 the truth, by the way, in a movie that is all about truth and legend and. And most pointedly, uh, if the truth actually makes the legend go away, we won't talk about the truth.
1: That's right. Yeah, famous, the, 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 the lasting legacy of the movie, you know, above all else is the famous quote at the end, Carlton Young, having heard this story, and Jimmy Stewart is telling it to him as much for absolution as for clarification, because he desperately wants to be rid of this thing that he's carried around with him his entire life. Carlton Young says, this is the West, sir, when facts become legend, print the legend. That's the, the thing that people have taken away. You know, that's the, the quote from Liberty Valance that is stuck around and, and made inroads in culture, you know, perhaps more than almost any other thing. Maybe the, the speech at the end of Grapes of Wrath comes to mind as something that's equally as iconic. But as far as Ford quote stuff goes, that is absolutely at the top of the, of the list. Um, and you're right. It's funny. The, the Kurosawa thing is, is, is uh, 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 quite well taken. Um, He loved Kurosawa. Um, He went to England in 1958 to make a mostly forgotten uh, 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 policier called Gideon's Day or Gideon of Scotland Yard with Jack Hawkins, which is a movie I like. I think it's good. Um, But he took the assignment because he wanted to go to London to meet Kurosawa because he was in town being feted for something. Um, He would have been doing press at that point for gosh, uh, 58, 57, I can't even remember. But anyway, it was, you know, he was there and they met and he just loved him and they drank together. And that was the, you know, the great, the great filmmaker drinking stories, you know, um, when uh, Kurosawa met uh, Tarkovsky, they also loved loved getting (laughs) drunk too. Um, I think Tarkovsky was the one I think who um, got drunk and started singing the theme to Seven Samurai in whatever bar they were in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is a very salient point about American life and American history that John Ford uh, d- depicted in 1962 <laughs> mm-hmm. from the perspective of somebody who you would typify as a conservative. That the yeah. idea that uh, the, the America is a country that's actually built on myths and that um, one of the biggest threats to uh, myth is the truth and 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 also that uh, Liberty Valance – is such a threat to the future of uh, of America in in that sequence where uh, where Liberty Valance? Uh, I mean, he's acting on behalf of the oil barons in the region. Like it's in everybody's best interests on the side of evil to make sure that this region doesn't become a state. Mm-hmm. You know, like Liberty Valance can be the guy he is a lot easier if there's no law and order, and uh, you know he 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 wants to still be able to come into town and wreak. Havoc, but yeah. he's situated out in the countryside where the laws don't apply to him. And it's, and when yeah. when he goes into Shinbone to uh, you know stir shit, it's in you know he's in a perfect position because the the, the lawman is afraid of him, and Rance uh, represents uh, the end of of outlaw justice, and. and- and uh, but the fact is that uh, outlaw justice is what elevates Rance into a position of power. It's not so much uh, all the things that he does in terms of education and and uh, you know society uh, and fairness in society. Uh, that's all well and good. But what really elevated Rance into uh, power is violence and the idea that he committed violence. And also that he committed violence that he is strenuously against when we first meet his character. He is so opposed to the idea that uh, that you punish a guy like Liberty Valance by murdering him instead of putting him in jail. And when his name is put before the nomination for, uh, for the legislature in this new state that's developing, John Carradine's character, who's a very uh, florid uh, orator, basically says in a cartoonish way everything that uh that he accuses Jimmy Stewart's character of is the kind of stuff that Jimmy Stewart actually believes in
1: right and and, and how fascinating that what Ransom Stoddard has to do is give into the you know deliberate Disillusion of his own principles in order to become the person that the country needed basically and the thing that he offers to everybody as you say is is you know uh, the fulfillment of personhood that by teaching people how to read you're giving them something you're giving them form and you're giving them you know a reason to continue basically you're giving them ambition and an understanding of the world that they wouldn't have had otherwise and thus you know the way that he is molding somebody like Hallie by allowing her to to comprehend you know and write her own name in oh my god all those scenes are so fucking beautiful um it's it's you know it's what they're trying to do for the territory that they're trying to take something that is shapeless, uh, and, and give it order and give it, you know, give it a, 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 definition and, and depth and an identity, you know, to make people more aware of themselves and ransom Stoddard has to betray everything that he understands in order to become the person who gave all of this back to people. Um, and it, you know, it, it, I like that the movie avoids the easy moralization of saying whether or not this is right or wrong, but rather that once you do these things, you then have to live with them. And, you know, the beautiful thing about myths is you can tell them in a, in a couple of minutes. You know, the story lasts two hours, but the scars last a lifetime. And it's, you know, that's that's the great thing that Ford was always eager to, to sort of hint to people is that you can spend two hours, you know, in a, in a movie hall with, with this or that character, but he wanted you to think about what was going to happen when the movie was done. You know, what happens next? It was why he liked historical movies so much because he was in his way transfixed by what was happening to the country. It was just in, you know, a way that was like you say, completely told through myths and, and fables and fantasy. I mean, and it's also fascinating to think that, Man who shot Liberty Valance uh, it presages a lot of truly horrific violence against extremely popular figures who believed in a lot of the same things that Ransom Stoddard believed in. You know, MLK and 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 Malcolm X and uh, Bobby Kennedy and you know the era of political assassination was about to begin, and so the film. Narrowly avoids becoming a very uncomfortable, you know, piece of the '60s, you know, narrative by not letting Jimmy Stewart off the hook for having done this thing, and that he becomes, you know, this celebrated figure because he shot the right person at the right moment. You know, it, it, you know, if Liberty Valance, you know, wasn't as evil as he was, it wouldn't have mattered. It, like you know, it's just, yeah. like it's all just that perfect thing there that lines up in the same way that we would later see, you know, people actually seeing in, you know, newsreel footage or you were there in Dallas or whatever, you know, like <laughs> at Dealey Plaza, the ramifications of people who had the wrong ideas at exactly the wrong moments. And so were taken out by, you know, in many cases, our own government, <laughs> very weird, you know, as are, those are conspiracy theories that are like, kind of not really conspiracy theories. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, fascinating to think that, it, you know, we would see the you know uh, the the literalization, I suppose, the externalization of Liberty Valence's message over and over and over again throughout the remaining years of that decade, um, and yeah, and 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 come no closer to an understanding fully of what violence does because we're still dealing with the fallout from those things today.
0: I had mentioned earlier that uh, this film also reminded me of Unforgiven. I mean, obviously, it's a late style Western. It's, a, it's putting a period on an entire <laughs> body yeah. of work. Like this was one of Ford's last films. It was certainly his last great film, and it was his last significant Western. And it also serves as a headstone for all the great Westerns that John Ford and John Wayne made together. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, Ford didn't want Wayne <laughs> to be in the movie. He was foisted upon him by Paramount Pictures.
1: Which it, it makes sense again, because you know, on, on paper, on paper, the wrong guy, you know, he's too yeah. old and, uh, you know, he's, he, he, he but it, it's just perfect. I mean, you know, like to talk about going full circle, you know, there's a childish element to the character that he plays in stagecoach Ringo, you know, this guy who just fully doesn't understand how society works, you know, that great scene where he's sitting next to a sex worker and the, you know, the, the polite society people at the table move to the other side of the table because they don't want to sit next to her. And he thinks it's because he's an outlaw, which is mm-hmm. such an amazingly childish conception where it's like, yeah, they really care about you, you know, whatever, like, like, it's never really become clear what it even is he's guilty of, you know, like that there's this vague, you know, kind of Outlaw thing that he's doing with his, you know, you know, but everybody's got to go to town to kill somebody and all that. But he does cut a very adolescent figure. He does not strike you as a fully formed adult. And the same is true of Tom Donovan that for all of his bluster and for all the things that he does and the things that he's built with his hands and everything, there is still a very childish element to him. And part of it is because he's never had the kind of education that Ransom Stoddard has. That in order to meaningfully take part in civilization, you really do have to understand how things work beyond how you've made them work. That out in the territory, you know, you can kind of just make up your own rules, especially if you're somebody like Tom Donovan or Liberty Valance, where people are both enamored of you or terrified enough of you that they're never going to stop you. And that's the kind of thing that's fairly interesting is that Donovan, especially towards the end when uh, Liberty Valance has been shot and he goes to a bar to get drunk because he knows that he's basically just ended his chances at happiness by protecting the woman that, you know, Hallie loves, I'm sorry, the man that Hallie loves more than him, you know, so he's like, both somebody that they love and support and respect, but he's also terrifying where he's tossing people around the bar room and he's breaking furniture and he's interrupting people's poker game and stuff. And it's like, yeah, no, with, with, you know, the right prodding, you too represented the same thing that Liberty Valance does, which is law as you make it rather than how, you know, it's agreed upon.
0: Um, you know, and, and, and also Tom, uh, rejects, an opportunity that Stoddard gives him to actually go along with him into politics. Because mm-hmm. at that nomination meeting, uh, Stoddard sort of puts Tom's name forward as a guy who could uh, be the future. And Tom says, I've got my own plans. He he turns down all these opportunities that could have been his, that Stoddard takes, right down to the fact that he's the guy who did it. He mm-hmm. shot Liberty Valance. Stoddard uh, was seen to be doing it. And Wayne helped do that because he he was providing him with sort of secret backup. He was kind of like the the you know if uh, if if Stoddard was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, then these and then uh, he was behind the grassy knoll. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? That's like, right. <laughs> like he he he's the secret conspiracy in some ways. Tom did it because Hallie asked him to, and he loved her, and mm-hmm. and he consigns himself to unhappiness it's heartbreaking at the end of the movie when a drunken Wayne returns home and and sets fire to the extension that he was building. It's like um, destroying his own world because uh, it might as well have been destroyed by the fates. I mean, you know, he dies a pauper, uh, a, a famous senator arrives to the funeral of somebody who's been completely forgotten. That's something that also the Irishman uh, echoed a bit too, that Very at much. the end of the movie, the old um, Robert De Niro is trying to show the nurse, these photos of Jimmy Hoffa. And she's like, who's that? Just like all the people in town are like, why did this guy show up for this old guy's funeral? We don't know who he is, but yeah. 40 years ago, the whole town knew who Tom was. Tom right. sacrificed his own individual identity and his own future for the good of Hallie's future for the good of the town's future um so there's something very bittersweet about the fact that like he died along with the old West.
1: Very much. And that's, you know, incredibly astute to tie that to Frank Sheeran and the Irishman who watches the end of the era of, you know, guys in suits doing all of this, you know, underhanded stuff to move the wheels of political power when, you know, the idea of getting people to vote was simply never enough because that was just the way that it was done for hundreds of years. I mean, going back, frankly, to the kind of thing that Liberty Valance is up to—that's very much the involvement that organized crime had in a lot of the union movements and stuff. And you know, of course, everybody still knows the name Jimmy Hoffa, but nobody knows Frank Sheer. Sure. Nobody knew Frank sure. And The only reason we know him now is because of The Irishman,
0: you know. Like, and the only reason—and the only reason why people know who Jimmy Hoffa is now—is because of his associations with the mob, and not the fact that he actually created organized labor in the United States.
1: Exactly right. And yeah, it was the way that he died that became the thing. And so it was this, you know, this thing where it was, you know, well, that's what you get for associating with the mob, as opposed to the years and years and years of trying to look out for, you know, the working man, just doing it in a way that most people view as underhanded and shady and illegal, which, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was, but also, you know, this was, again, this was the way that things were done. I mean, you know, I, I, I had a, I had a great uncle who was involved in, um, like he was sort of adjacent to a lot of Philly organized crime when he was younger and all the stories about the way that that stuff used to run where, you know, you'd be, like it's just fascinating it's just fascinating to know that this was you know not exactly tolerated a lot of these guys did hard time but nevertheless you couldn't really shut this thing down it took becoming obsolete in their own lifetimes to really shut down what organized crime meant or you know means to people that you know we have this you know very and again because of stories because of fables because of the godfather right everybody has their own idea of what these things were and are and they bear zero relation to what you know really happened which is why of course the irishman is so fascinating because there is a lot of stuff in there that really did happen you know that's the, the you can dispute the the uh final crime that does away with frank's identity and takes his family from him and all that whether or not he did kill jimmy hoffa is you know still very much open for debate but in the context of that story It's perfect. It is the perfect thing that this Mm -hmm. man loved you and trusted you and believed in you and gave you shape and dignity and made you somebody. That's what he keeps saying is that, you know, when he's around Jimmy Hoffa, the family loved him and he couldn't talk to his family. He had a, you know, a horrible relationship with his kids and contentious relationship with his wife. They never spoke. And he wound up doing jail time for things that had nothing to do with, you know, that. And it just, everything in his life was stripped away from him because of the foundational thing that he betrayed the best friend he had in the world. And he did it because that was just the way that things were done, Uh, you know, and that's, it's, you know, and I love, I love when directors like Scorsese and Ford and Clint Eastwood who are, you know, fixtures in America, they were, they were, they were some of the rare American artists to transcend the idea of them being picture makers where it's, you know, that's Clint Eastwood was uh, a, a brand and an icon and, you know, just like a legend, it, while he was a young man, you know, he was, he was very much made, uh, immortal w- before he had hit his 50th birthday. He was an American institution in that way. And so when those guys get to a part where they start to think about their own, uh, mortality, it brings out a current of sadness in the work, but also a fascinating, um, willingness to experiment and try things and, and, and really say things the way that you mean them. There's, there's both, this sort of um, uh, it, un, un un indefinable quality to late cinema that I love so much, where it's a mixture of the concrete and the abstract, where you know the 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 emotions that are felt in a movie like The Irishman and Liberty Valance, are it's very obvious that, you know, you're you're meant to feel sad because these people made these decisions and all that. But there's just so many odd loose ends and so many other beautiful things that you can't account for when you start trying to tell the truth in a way that you hadn't before, where you realize that you don't have as much work left in you as possible. And, you know, that that uh these these stories may be the last ones that you tell, but that also induces a kind of panic. Scorsese gave a beautiful quote earlier this year about um the, during the Killers of the Flower Moon press junket where it's, you know, I'm just now discovering what cinema can be and there's no time left. It's like, Oh my God, how does your heart not break hearing that? It was just so beautiful. And I think Ford very much felt the same thing because his last fiction film, which is the magnificent seven women um, is a, is a fairly straightforward film in a lot of ways. He takes risks. Certainly he does, but it is, you know, the story of a couple of people. It's basically like a cavalry picture, but it's set in, uh, in Asia instead of uh, North America. And you can sense in this that he's discovering things that had not been clear to him, uh, before too long, in the same way that going back to black and white to shoot Liberty Valance, something, it was a, uh, a, a format he hadn't used, um, in a, in a couple of years. Um, actually I'm saying that that's not true. He made, uh, the last hurrah was in black and white, but he, he hadn't made a black and white Western since Rio Grande. Um, and even that was made begrudgingly, but, um, you know, you 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 discover things. You know, at that time in your life, and with that kind of responsibility, and with the you know understanding that these are going to be the last ones that you do, um, and I and I just you know you you have to applaud people, you know, artists who are taking nervy risks. You know, so close to either the retirement or the end of their lives um you know the great late artists of the last couple of decades people like Raul Ruiz and Manuel de Oliveira and certainly Clint Eastwood among them you know all of Clint's digital movies are so beautiful in so many different ways um you know even a movie I don't really like like American Sniper you know that's it's still a fascinating film it's actually not dissimilar to Man Who Shot Liberty Valence in its way because mm-hmm. it's somebody famous for violence that he committed against somebody else um, you know, Richard Jewell reminded me a little bit of
0: the man who shot Liberty Valance.
1: I completely agree because it's about the way that you contextualize things. It's somebody who who doesn't seem, you know, on their face like a traditional heroic figure and who needs indeed the, you know, the help and guidance of somebody who has had the more traditional education. It's, you know, there's the dynamic may be a little flipped, but I completely agree with you. It's a very Liberty Valance adjacent movie in a, in a number of ways.
0: And the important thing about um, this film is situated in about 1910 or so. Uh, as it begins uh, you know Stoddard uh, has an opportunity to use the media which is an even stronger machine than it was when he was propelled into prominence. I mean his uh, the newspaper biz was kind of a new thing in the mid you know post-civil War mm-hmm. By the early teens the media was helping to perpetuate American society and the perceptions of what really happened in the old West. And uh, that's why it's such an incredible uh, touch at the end of the film—the idea that he basically confesses to the newspaper. Like, you know, he's like, "This is what really happened." You, I've had this career, uh, but it's all built on a lie. And this is the story. This is why I'm here. And the newspaper editor knows that uh, this is a d- great story, but we can't publish it because that would wreck American life and American history. And we just have to go with what we've been told already
1: yeah that's it's it's it, that and it's and it's such a terrible uh, admission that the foundation on which so much of american life and society is built is so shaky mm-hmm. and the of a lie being exposed could undo so much of people's faith in in you know this or that system or the media or, or, or anything. And how badly you know it is it is seen that America needs heroes, right? And yeah. and that if you take them from them, which is you know again something that we learned both the easy and the hard way by not you should not have heroes in that way because almost nobody has actually done what you need to to like get to that you know stature and nobody can withstand the scrutiny. And again, it's a movie. Very very much about Ford in this way because no one can withstand a changing political tide that morality in this country gets a new update every couple of seconds because people understand more about themselves, but also because the opposition is thus terrified of every new thing that happens, and so every single new issue, uh, you, you, whatever whatever made whatever sense you made of it even a year ago, it doesn't make any sense now because the rules and parameters of everything have changed so much, and everything is sensationalized immediately. And Ford was a casualty of that as well as anything. I mean, the famous you know Tarantino interview where he calls him a white supremacist and all that. It's like, and you know, that's very much a symptom of the way that our, our, our views of things evolve constantly to think that there would be a time where John Ford was not simply a beloved filmmaker is kind of fascinating because I would bet money that there are people who, when he was alive, if you had told them that would have co- called you crazy. You know, it's like, well, how does it possibly, It's he made, he made some of the finest American movies of all time. How could you possibly let that man fall out of favor or whatever it was? And it just happens. You know, we now mo- know more about the, you know, abusive behavior of sculptors and painters and, and composers and all this. And so the question that we have now is, you know, who do we keep? Do we keep our heroes? Do we keep the artwork? What matters to us most of all? And these are conversations where you have to continue to have, which was a huge reason why I wanted to write the book at all, was it's, I just think that losing, you know, in this way, losing Ransom Stoddard to the truth of the matter Means that you lose the things that uh, you know he he did for the territory, right? That you don't get then statehood, you don't get illiterate populace and all that stuff, and so we do sometimes have to take the truly abysmal and horrible with the undeniable good that a work of art has uh, has done for people and for civilization and for you know the development of film language, and that. As much as John Ford, as you point out, was the reason that we have so many harmful stereotypical images in film, he's also the reason that we understand what a movie can be because he did sort of invent a kind of American movie that is, you know, still being made to this day you know, the the final section of my book is all about the influence that Ford has had on filmmakers and continues to exert on filmmakers to this day. You know, when we all get to see Killers of the Flower Moon later this year, I anticipate there being a number of Fordian references in it as there is in most things that Scorsese does. And, you know, when you start to try to pull those things apart, it just becomes impossible. You cannot separate the influence of good artists, however you want to define that, from the influence of problematic artists in somebody like Scorsese's body of work, because again, he came of age at a very different time. He was, you know, a young man when when Ford was still alive and, you know, saw all those things firsthand and started making his first movies right as Ford was retiring and there wasn't the moral authority that exists today, nor the well-researched history of people's terrible behavior that there is today, that all that stuff was essentially hearsay. And even people who supposedly had the right uh, idea about all that stuff, like Kenneth Anger, he was fabricating most of that stuff <laughs> yeah. anyways. You had no idea yeah. <laughs> what people's <laughs> lives were like. Um I find it interest- Print the legend. Yeah, exactly right. You print the legend because it's more <laughs> interesting. And, you know, and then you just continue moving. And it's like, obviously, a film can be 10,000 things, but the American cinema is, like it or not, very much born in the reflection of John Ford's images. And, you know, that's... You, you, you cannot really strip that for parts. It's just, you know, you can take those things and you don't have to say that John Ford was a great American or anything like that or somebody that you want watching your children or whatever. But... A movie like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is unfortunately always going to be useful. It's funny you bring up that it's like set, you know, sort of 1910 years because obviously that was, when, you know, around the time that Ford moved to Hollywood to start making films. Um, and also it's like Ford's uh, uh, friends and, you know, frequent uh, champion Orson Welles. It's a great movie about the press. You know, it's mm-hmm. all about... The, the, the things and, and very much Kane like Liberty Valence is about a guy who destroys himself for what he sees as the greater good or the good of other people except of course that he leaves the world a worse place sort of on purpose <laughs> but uh, you know it's it's you know trying to unravel a mystery through flashbacks in that very same way um, and you know Wells you know certainly you can't go around just blindly uh, recommending something like Othello even in that that movie is it, unbelievably directed because you're right, because things change, because everything changes. And, you know, it is it is now no longer, you know, the, 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 the whatever job critics and curators used to have comes with the necessary complications of a constantly changing moral shape of the country in which they're doing their work, um, which I do think is a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. But I also, you know, am wary of the idea of, you know, leaving certain people behind, because we don't like a lot of the truly terrible things that they did. It's like, yeah, but that's history. That's who we were and it's who we are. To to cut them loose because we don't like their ideas means that it is so much easier to repeat the mistakes. And, you know, it's just not a good way to move into the future is to forget the past.
0: Yeah, which, you know, is uh, what is necessary in Liberty Valance's final moments is the mm-hmm. idea of of that you do have to actually forget the past or you do have to stick with what was written down, uh, you know, uh, very McLuhan-ish, in fact. Yes, the idea indeed. of uh, the printed word actually like trumping <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the actual events that as long as it's in writing, then that makes it real. Which is very much the
1: way that American history works.
0: And that's what's so significant about Liberty Valance when he uh, tries to sort of derail the nomination process. And then when he loses and it gets printed that he lost, he tries to destroy the freedom of the press. Mm -hmm. That's such an important thing to uh, keep the land from becoming a state is the idea of sort of taking away your uh, educational uh, opportunities and, and institutional uh, systems to perpetuate that stuff. Like, you know, no wonder he tried to, to, to uh, stop the newspaper from printing and tried to kill the publisher, because if he doesn't, then he's going to be yesterday's man.
1: Exactly right. And, you know, it's it is ultimately the way that we pass those things down that it was, you know, we did it word of mouth, which, of course, is how the legend of Liberty Valance gets built up in the first place. Enough people talking about that scary man out in the dark, and he becomes a legend. But the more that you replace it with new myths and ideas, then the less power that that thing has in the first place. You know, there are a million, you know, great narratives about this, because it is such a key window into the way that America has always viewed itself and the way that we treat our own history.
0: Man Who Shot Liberty Valance sort of predates the official death of the Western in the late 60s. Like it, This movie is kind of a preview of the end of the genre, right down to having some figures that will be important in neo-Westerns in a few mm-hmm. years, like Lee Van Cleef and Lee Marvin. The idea of also new Hollywood showing up in, in what is actually one of the final old Hollywood movies.
1: Yeah, I always uh, loved that, that it's, you know, it's very much, you know, with... Lee Van Cleef, you point the way towards the Italian Western, which becomes, you know, a lurid alternative to American Westerns. In Lee Marvin, you have his appearance in some things that are sort of Western adjacent for sure. Um, Movies, obviously, like, you know, the later Cat Baloo and also something like Emperor of the North Pole by Robert Aldrich, which isn't a true Western, but is an amazing movie and has the same kind of dynamic about what movies are going to be now. It's violent and it's about the poor and it's this hard scrabble life and all this other stuff. Um, and then um, in Struther Martin, you have the Sam Peckinpah movies and Peckinpah very much an artist born, you know, in, in, in the reflection of, of, of Ford in a, a hundred ways where the wild bunch was the film that essentially kicked off what was understood as the new Western in America. And you know, it leads on down the road to, you know, whether it's Culpeper Cattle Company or Doc, great Frank Perry film. And then later Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gates, you know, that the new violent Western, Uh, replaced the more classical one, the more restrained one, but they have basically the same idea, which is that, you know, living by violence means that you will be undone by it in some form or another. Um, And, you know, you could be more uh, explicit about those things, but I think Peckinpah kind of chased the same sorts of obsessions that Ford did. It was, you know, what do you, what, do you, what do you do when push comes to shove? Is civilization something that can be contained within the human body alone? You know, in Straw Dogs, that's certainly the case is, you know, that's a guy who views himself as an educated person and somebody who's, you know, come to, you know, provide a town with this sort of very much like a Ransom Stoddard sort of figure. And then, of course, when pushed, he becomes more violent than everyone around him.
0: Yeah, but you know everybody loses in this everybody movie. Everybody uh, loses. <laughs> Hallie is obviously still loves Tom, and you know the idea of the cactus flower at the end and beautiful, and, uh, and also the idea that uh, the guy from the east uh, doesn't really think cactus flowers are beautiful. Mm-hmm. He th- uh, he thinks of a cactus rose as inferior to a rose you know it's, and so yeah. he represents the sort of the urbanization and the and the lack of uh, of the future of the old west but it, she she wound up or- yeah but she wound up uh not being with the true love of her life she chose the smart decision which was to marry to marry jimmy stewart cuz mm-hmm. you know like life is going to be a lot easier with guys like him and in charge of the country and, uh, you know, so she loses too. And we see that at the end.
1: And it's just so, so heartbreaking. And that moment too, the cactus flower thing that you're talking about, like Jimmy Stewart in this, in his way, it's very kind of like boyish enthusiasm when Tom gives her the cactus flower and she's looking at it and she's so struck by its beauty. And then he asks her, have you ever seen a real rose, which is just such a telling, you know, little like thing where it's like, yeah, but you know, we have, we have real things back where I'm from and we can, you know, this, this part of the world could be like back there as opposed to what it is now, which it may be beautiful, but it's beauty sprung from dirt as opposed to beauty, you know, uh, 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 that is watered and cared for in the way that you need to, to allow, you know, his, his, his ideas about, you know, civilization to flower properly. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's just it's it's so carefully written and so beautifully put together. It's like yeah, every little thing just kind of, you expect you expect there to be moments that don't work, and you watch it every time, and you're struck anew by just how excellent and and just how perfect the gestures are and those performance
0: notes and how touching everybody is. Oh my God, yeah. When you watch Liberty Valance again, uh, with all the knowledge of what the actual plot is, that first section of the movie is so poignant it's because so heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. we understand when we see it again, that this was the love of Hallie's life. And we also understand that Jimmy Stewart, who abhors violence and uh, is credited for a violent act that he didn't even commit, feels very strongly that Tom's body should be buried with his gun and his spurs, which have been stolen. The people at the funeral home seem to have made off with his gun and his his boots. boots. Yep. And And, I uh, I, I love that. So Mr. Nonviolence wants to make sure that this man is buried with his gun because it's the way that he still thinks of him. It's the thing that separates him
1: from Tom Donovan, even then is please bury this man with his gun so that everybody knows that he was a violent cowboy who doesn't belong in, you know, the 20th century. It's such a telling, telling little moment. And it's such a thing. It's like, that doesn't actually matter to you. And then the beautiful, beautiful (laughs) Andy Devine reading afterwards, where he was like, he basically just like, He can't even, he's still a coward later in his life, but he's like slowly working up the courage to become a more demonstrative person. And he says to him, oh, come on, Rance, he hasn't worn his gun in years. And Mm -hmm. it's like, again, the fact's not getting in the way of his impression of something from the fabled image that he kept of him all these years, that he was here living a lie, and he still thinks he can control what people think of him. He still controls the lie of Tom Donovan now that he's dead. And he's the one who's going to bury him with his gun. It's so fascinating.
0: Good. From out of the East, a stranger came, a law book in his hand. Oh, man, the kind of a man the West would need to tame a troubled land. Because the point of a gun was the only law that liberty understood when it came to shooting straight and fast. Scout, before we go, I do want to mention one little coda. When I first saw this movie uh, properly at the Cinematheque in Toronto, when it was all over, the lights came back up and I was like, hey, where was the Gene Pitney song? Where's the Burt Bacharach song that's That's in this movie? Because I didn't know that it actually didn't make the final cut of the movie. Gene Pitney sings the song, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but it was actually commissioned for the movie. And then as it turned out, not used for it. Do you know anything about this?
1: Yes. It was a matter of timing. Um, they got the assignment, they were all ready to do it. And then they were in the studio. And because it was such a fast production, because they didn't have all that much money, um, they finished the song and then I think somebody brought in a newspaper or something like that into the studio and it had a showtime like showtime <laughs> listing for the Van who Valens. We're I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> but they released it anyway as a kind of a tie in and it did fairly well. I think it charted. Um, it was, you know, like a lot of rack and, uh, I, I can't remember how David was involved at that point, but
0: um, number four, number four yeah. hit.
1: Did very well. It's and in, uh,
0: in the re-release trailers for Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. They mention the hit single, but it's That's not right. in the movie. And, no. uh, so I had this sort of Mandela effect when I saw the movie, it's like, what the print that I saw doesn't have the song in it. And then I found out it wasn't actually in the, in the movie. That's right.
1: Yeah. I love, <laughs> I love stuff like that. Um, and it's kind of interesting in its way because of course, um, one of the other Westerns of this period, that sort of is, you know, the start of the new, the new Western, as we understand it, is Butch and Sundance, which famously grinds to a halt to, uh, have another Bacharach song play throughout it. Um, yeah. And, uh, that was because, because George Roy Hill so hated the idea of there being a pop song in his movie. He didn't direct that day. And, uh, the, 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 the woman who plays the, the, the lead in that, I was it Catherine Ross? Catherine Ross. Catherine yeah. Ross hated George Roy Hill. And so that was the only day of shooting she liked because he wasn't a run
0: <laughs> Well, it was wonderful talking to you about your book and, uh, Scout, I'll give you a chance to plug this book and to let my listeners know where they can find you on social media.
1: Yes, yes, please. Uh, I'm not as as big on social anymore. Um, just you know, with Twitter's death throes and everything else, and uh, uh, so. But you can find me uh, at I'm at Honors Zombie or at Honors underscore Zombie on most of the things. Um, I have a Patreon where every week I release two new pieces of film writing and a new video essay. So find me there, patreon.com slash Honors Zombie. Uh, directed a number of movies you can find, most of them on uh, Vimeo or Vimeo On Demand. The book is But God Made Him a Poet, watching John Ford in the 21st century. Um, It is available at withanxbooks.com. With an X, the publishing imprint run by my dear friend John Nix, who's a great multidisciplinary artist and author in his own right. Um, He very kindly... Uh, encouraged me to write this. I had uh, sort of undertaken the process of writing about Ford and then he came along and said, I want your next book. What is it? And so I had all this Ford material and so just shaped it with his help into what it is now. Um, The response has been really, really excellent. Uh, William Boyle wrote a really, really lovely review uh, for the Southwestern review. Gerald Perry reviewed it for arts views. Um, It's been, it's been doing very well with a lot of people in the classic film set so if you needed that kind of endorsement, it's, it's, it's for sure out there. I got, um, extremely fortunate that Carrie Rickey, um, a great Philadelphia Inquirer critic who's still out there doing great work and, uh, Molly Haskell, the legendary feminist film critic, they both gave me jacket blurbs. Um, and so they both, uh, liked it. So if it's good enough for them, it sh- I hope it's good enough for everybody else too. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's, it was a labor of love. It took me about uh, you know, almost two years to get, you know, from, from first uh, uh, writing to, to getting it published. And I'm just so excited that it's out there for people to find. Um, and if you like that, I have another book on Toby Hooper you can buy called Cinemophagy. That one's on Amazon and all the other places. But um, Within X Books is the only place right now that you can get uh, um, But God Made Him a Poet online. Um, if you're in the Boston area, you can go to the Harvard Bookshop. They've got it. Um, and it's in a scattered few other places as well. Um, My aunt, Seal, works at the Doylestown Library, and I believe has uh, got a copy of it for that uh, as well. So you can check it out if you live in Doylestown.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll include a link to purchase your book in the show description. So smash that buy button now. I sold a bunch of Miami Vice box sets this summer, so I don't see why I can't sell a few of your books.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so so much for this opportunity i uh, you know could talk about this stuff all damn day as i'm sure by now you've learned um but uh just a great a fantastic opportunity and you know obviously been a, a big fan of uh, your online output for a lot of years so this is very very fun for me so thank you so much jesse
0: oh thank you please come back again anytime
1: oh for, i'd love to please yeah time and place i'll be there
0: before we go just a reminder that we do have a patreon and patrons get access to every episode of Junk filter Including every episode of this summer's sidebar series on Miami Vice. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at JunkfilterPod. We'll have another episode in the next few days. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening. Each other, only one return. Liberty violence. he was the bravest of them all. The man who shot Liberty Valen, he shot Liberty Valen, he was the bravest of them all.